Father God, thank you for this day again. Thank you that we could be in this space together uh, as a community that is seeking uh, to take a step towards you. Uh, whether they are steps of listening to your voice and, and getting us to the place where you want us to be, where we can grow in the best way, whether it's steps of, uh, of wrestling with hard issues or hard faith questions or whatever it may be, Lord, we pray that, uh, that we can be people who are constantly seeking your guidance and then taking a step in that direction. God, we pray that, uh, that as we approach your word now, as we move our way through scripture, we're able to hear the message you have for us this morning uh, through the words that were written long ago but that are alive because your spirit is in them. Amen. All right. So when my girls were little, uh, maybe some of you can relate to this, um, they would get fixated on one particular movie uh, for a long time. As anybody who has young kids, you might know that. So I've seen the movie Frozen about a billion times, somewhere around there, right? I've also seen the movie Up about the same number of times. That was one that we went through for a while, where you just watch it over and over and over and over again. Oh my goodness, this one again. Um, why I mention that is that it might feel like we're going to be doing that here for the next couple weeks. Uh, so we've been working through the story of Joseph, which is one of the longest like, narratives around a person in the whole Bible. Um, and so it's taken us a while to get through. And in order to understand the full story uh, of Joseph, we're going to have to recap where we've been. And we're going to have to do this, that, which will take a while as we get further through it. And we're going to have to do it again next week. So just buckle up for that. That's what we're going to be looking at for the next couple, couple weeks here. It might feel like we're watching Frozen or Up over and over and over again. Uh, but we've been working through the story of Genesis for, the, for the, the entirety of this year. And we're actually getting close to the end, which is hard to believe. We've seen God work in so many different people's stories in so many different ways. We've seen, we've seen God uh, continually move towards humanity as we have messed up over and over and over and over and over again. We've seen that even though God calls the, uh, the, uh, the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we saw that their stories are filled with brokenness and hurt and pain. We've seen that in those spaces, God has, has continued to met them, meet them and call them back to himself. We've seen the same in Joseph's story, right? So <clears throat> we've been working through Joseph's story for the past little over a month and a half at this point. And if you've missed any of it, we, I want to get you caught up. So if we can throw up that chart that I've got there first. It can be confusing, but Joseph, uh, so we, uh, when God's interaction with the people of Israel starts with a guy named Abraham, which you can see at the top of that chart there. Abraham and Sarah have a son named Isaac. Isaac marries uh, Rebekah, who has a son, Jacob and Esau, but Jacob is the one that we follow. Um, and then Jacob has 12 sons with four different, well, two different wives and two different um, concubines, essentially, or maidservants. And so uh, you can see them listed there. Leah has the, the, uh, the number of them. Um, I'm sorry, with one extra, five, three concubines, two wives. But uh, you can see Leah there... Uh, in, in her line, um, and then th those spaces. Um, why we want to put that chart up there is because we're, uh, Joseph um, is the oldest son uh, of Rachel. And if you, if, if you remember back to the story of Jacob, uh, Jacob has a favoritism problem. Um, he actually isn't even subtle about it. It actually, it's hard to read sometimes. Leah works really hard to get Jacob's favor, and he doesn't treat her well. Rachel, on the other hand, he clearly loves more. And we see that in, in, his, uh, in his interactions with his wives and, and others. That particular kind of favoritism translates into his son as well. 
So even though Jacob is not the oldest son, he is the favorite son. And we looked at that a number of weeks back. And Joseph isn't subtle about his favorite son either. He doesn't make him go into the fields to work. He gives him a special coat of many colors, if you remember that, or a well-ordained or ornamented coat. I keep saying ordained, but I mean ornamented. A well-ornamented coat. Um, he actually treats, he makes him his bechor, if you want to use a good Hebrew word with a ch in it, so you can spit at people, right? Uh, what that essentially is, is uh, it, if you're a bechor, that means you're treated like the oldest son, meaning you get double portion of the inheritance, uh, that, that, you're, that the blessing rides out with them. It's the same thing we saw in the Jacob and Esau stuff that doesn't nece didn't necessarily go to the oldest. So Joseph is treated that way. Even though he's not the oldest, he's treated like the oldest. And as a result, his brothers hate him. Now, Joseph doesn't help that either. He doesn't really, he doesn't humbly accept that position. He kind of flaunts it, whether it's with his coat or whether it's with telling his brothers about his dreams uh, whether it's the fact that he doesn't have to work and he's okay with that, all of those different things play into that as well. And so Joseph is, is Jacob's bechor and, he, and, and treated as the oldest. His brothers hate him for it. So one day he, they're in the field, they beat him up, they throw him in a cistern uh, and sell him into slavery in Egypt. They then take his cloak back to Jacob and tell him that he was killed. <clears throat> Joseph then spends a, a, a long time as a slave, a slave in the house of a guy named Potiphar. Maybe you remember that. Uh, in that space, he's a servant. He's lowly. He doesn't have a lot of power or any power. And so as a result, when Potiphar's wife accuses him of trying to sleep with her, uh, Potiphar obviously reacts as you think someone would and had him thrown in jail. So then Joseph spends a, no, a long amount of time in jail as well. We know it was quite a, quite a long time. We don't know exactly how long it was, but we know it was long enough that a lot of people didn't remember him. From that space, we saw a couple weeks ago that Joseph uh, is able to interpret a dream of Pharaoh, and as a result, he's taken out of jail. Uh, and the dream that Joseph was able to interpret is that there's going to be a famine coming. But first, you're going to have seven years of plenty. So store up for the grain in the times of plenty so that you'll have enough when the seven years of famine come. Pharaoh's impressed. And so he puts Joseph in charge of running that, uh, that uh, enterprise, the, the grain storage and grain distribution. He gives Joseph a ton of power, actually makes him like the second in command over Egypt. Last week, we picked, it up, picked up the story there and we, and we talked about power. Joseph is placed, went from a low place, but placed into an incredibly high position that contained a ton of power. And so last week what we saw was that, Joseph's, that there was a famine in Canaan, where his dad and brothers were living, and the only place in the world at this time, or in, the, in that particular region at the time, that had any kind of food that they could sell was Egypt, because of Joseph interpreting the dreams from before. And so Joseph's brothers are then sent to uh, Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. We saw last week that Joseph, when his brothers show up, recognize, recognizes his brothers, but his brothers don't recognize him. We're told because Joseph dressed like an Egyptian, he spoke like an Egyptian, probably walked like, that's the third time we made that joke. That just doesn't hit as well the third time, does it? But, but, he, but he, uh, he even spoke in Egyptian, so he was, he was using a translator to talk to his brothers. We saw last week, the point that we left with last week was that 
how we use our power matters. That in Joseph's case, he has all of it, and his brothers have none of it. If he wants revenge, it's there for the taking. He could, do what, he could command whatever he wanted to command, that they be imprisoned, that they be beaten, that they be killed, because he actually accuses them of being spies. Which if you were here last week, if that's like, well, how can he do that? If you want to throw up a second map we have there. See, Joseph's brothers had to travel in on this particular road here. If you, are, uh, if you want to, inv- so when a nation has food and other nations don't have food, uh, one of, they do have an economic advantage, sure, and that's what we see. But what they also have to watch out for is what history has shown us over and over and over again. If somebody has food and somebody else doesn't, Buying it isn't always the only option. Sometimes you take it by force, right? So Egypt has to make sure that no one's coming to attack them. If you're in the east and you want to attack Egypt, the only way to do it is on that little road there because you have water to the north and you have mountains and desert to the south and to the east. That's the way Joseph's brothers have to travel into Egypt. And so Joseph can say, it's clear they're spies coming from the east to take our stuff. He's in a position that has all of the power. And he has to decide how he's going to use it. Is he going to get revenge? Or is he going to do something else with it? And so we asked everyone the question last week, where do you have power? We all have it to a varying degree over different things. And so we have to analyze, where do I have power? And then we finished it with with a theme that we're going to continue this week. That's why I'm spending so much time on it with the question, how are you going to use that power? We said in our culture, often we view power as a tool to keep others below us. I'm going to use my power to stay on top. I'm going to create a lid so that I'm up here and everybody else stays down there. If you don't believe me, just watch a political ad. I mean, right? Isn't that literally what they all are? Is this person is terrible and I am great, they need to be below me. It's how we use our power. But we focused last week on how Jesus uses his which is fundamentally different. If we could throw up Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, we, get, we got an image of how Jesus uses his power, which says, do nothing out of va- uh, selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you to the interests of others. And then Paul's charge, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage but rather made himself nothing. We said that we all have power last week to varying degrees. And our culture says we use power to keep others down. But what Jesus models is that he uses his his power to bring others up, to empower other people around him. That it's not about him, but it's about using power to elevate others. We actually had an amazing discussion about this, the practicalities of, of this in men's group last week which is also a shameless plug for men's group. Uh, We don't have it this week, but next week we do. Come join us. We'll be talking about stuff like that. So that gets us all caught back up to speed. Now, I said, forewarning, we're going to do that again next week, so just be prepared. But today we're going to continue our story. Now, I will also give this caveat. We're going to be moving through a lot of Bible today. When I put my slides got pulled off, they went, whoa, that's a lot of slides. Yeah, because we're going through a lot of Bible. Uh, and so uh, if you don't normally have a Bible open or an app, uh, it might actually be helpful today. And we're going to try to read a lot of it, but we're going to have to paraphrase some for the sake of time as well. So we start today in Genesis 42:35. So we're going to be in Genesis 42:35. 
Uh, where we are, the ten brothers, not Benjamin, have asked Joseph for grain, uh, and he accuses them of being spies. In that interaction, Joseph learns that Benjamin and Jacob are still alive, and he demands that the brothers uh, bring Benjamin back to Egypt with them. If, uh, the, the way the story goes is Joseph's going to keep Simeon, one of the brothers, uh, in prison until the other brothers bring Benjamin back. So, so there's 10 of them there now. Benjamin is back with Jacob. Simeon's going to stay. Nine of them are going to go back. And then they have to bring, to get Simeon out of jail, they'll have to bring Benjamin back to Egypt. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. As we read through, I want to point out a few things, but I also want you to be asking yourselves the question, why is Joseph doing what he's doing? Why does he care so much about seeing Benjamin? Uh, why, does, why does it seem like he's playing games with his brothers, which you'll see very quickly here? Just a general, what's going on here? What's Joseph's intention? What's his motive? All right, you guys ready? Let's start at Genesis 42, 25. Joseph gave the orders to fill their bags with grain. To put each man's, and, then, and to put each man's silver back in his sack and to give them the provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get food for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of the sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. They said, the, ma the man who is lowered over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, we're honest men, we're not spies. We were 12 brothers, sons of one father. One, one, is no, one is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Then the man who is lord of the land said to us, this is how I will know whether you're an honest man. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take food for your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, so I will know that you are not spies, but honest men. Then I will give you your brother back, and you can trade in the land. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father said to them, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care, and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey uh, you are taking, you will bring the gray, the gray head down, or sorry, you will bring my gray head down into the grave in sorrow. So here is the beginning of the game that we were talking about. His brothers travel back home, and when they get there, they unload their grain and realize that at the top of each of their bags is the money that they had used to pay for the grain that was in Egypt, which, rightly so, they're understandably terrified because their assumption is that Joseph, they don't know it's Joseph, will assume that they stole it back, right? That they bought, they, they've already been accused of being spies, and now they're leaving with the grain that they thought they purchased only to find that they never paid. And so they're, they're thinking... The, someone who's second in Egypt, one, could either come try to get us because we stole grain from him and that's not a thing you do, or two, if we ever show our faces again, we're in trouble, right? Because their only assumption that they could assume is that, that Joseph, which again, they don't know is Joseph, uh, will assume that they stole it. Remember, their interaction with Joseph from their perspective felt really hostile. 
and one of their brothers is actively in jail in Egypt. Now it freaks, Jake, Jacob, J- ugh, freaks Jacob out too. He's feel, now he feels like he's lost two sons, which my, your heart kind of breaks for Simeon here, doesn't it? Right? So as a result, he's very hesitant to let Benjamin go, even though the, the, the only way to get Simeon back is to, to bring uh, Benjamin to Egypt. Jacob's like, I can't do it. Right? I've lost two sons already, not going to lose a third. But the story continues in 43.1. Now the famine was still severe in the land, so when they had eaten all their grain and they had brought, that they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little bit more food. Now, for the sake of time here, I'm going to paraphrase what happens next. I would encourage you to read it on your own at a different time. Jacob doesn't send the brothers back right away. They actually eat through all the grain that they had bought. Again, my heart kind of breaks for Simeon. He's got to be like, what the heck, guys? Like, I stayed here, and you all just finished your grain and kind of forgot about me, right? But, Jake, but, they, but they're desperate still. Maybe they were hoping that they could eat through the grain and the famine would be lifted and they could grow their own, but they couldn't. Uh, the problem is they have a problem, right? As we've already talked about, they can't go back to Egypt without Benjamin uh, for two reasons. One, they can't go because that's what Joseph said. If you don't come back, he'll assume they're spies. And two, they have this whole thing with the money. They're worried about that as well. So it's a double duty. There's no way they could explain that Jacob uh, wouldn't let Benjamin go and say, we're not spies and we stole your money. Like, that's a, that's a pretty messed up situation, Right? And so after a long interaction between Judah and Jacob, Judah promises on his life that he will bring Benjamin back. They're desperate. They need food. Jacob's hesitant. Judah says, on my life, I'll make sure Benjamin comes back. And so Jacob finally agrees to let Benjamin go. They actually load up with whatever little gifts they can bring and twice the amount of silver they needed to repay the extra from last time and they head out to Egypt. We pick back up in verse 15. So the men took the gifts and the double the amount of silver and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and, pretend, and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. So the brothers offered Joseph the gifts that they had brought along with a little bit of extra silver and explained to him kind of what happened. And so Joseph responds favorably, which is good. That's got, got to be a big sigh of relief. Uh, he invites them in for a meal. Joseph then asks about his father, and he's actually emotionally moved by seeing Benjamin, we're, we're told. Let's keep going. Verse 32. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. The men, had been seated before, or the men had been seated before him in order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. And so the game begins again. The brothers sit down for a meal, and they're served a feast. Now, remember, they're coming from famine, so all a feast would be an extreme luxury at this point. They're probably hungry. And we get this detail. Benjamin gets five times as much as any of his brothers do, which is an important detail. Goes to our question, why would Joseph do that? What's he trying to do here? Keep that in your mind. We'll keep going. 
Genesis 44.1. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of the house. Fill them in sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As the morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after this men at once. And when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't, the, isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well then, he said. Let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each one of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, for dramatic effect, I'm assuming. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes and they loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Uh-oh. Right? <laughs> More games. Joseph places his cup into Benjamin's sack and, his, and sends his brothers off, but it's a trap. Only to quick, uh, only because he quickly sends a servant to catch them. And after a little drama, right, he goes from oldest to youngest, actually probably building anticipation. Right, can you imagine, like, if these, they're being accused and each of them doesn't have it, and, they, and like, each time it gets closer to Benjamin, they, get a, they panic a little bit more, you've got to imagine, and just praying it's not in Benjamin's sack. But it is. So again, why is Joseph doing this? What is he getting at? Let's continue the story and see if we can figure it out. Verse 14. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in. He threw themselves to the ground before them, for him. Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that, that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who is found to have the cup. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who is found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Okay. Let's pause there for a minute. What in the world is going on here? Why is Joseph doing this? Is he messing with his brothers? Is he just trying to make them, uh, is, this a, is this a revenge tool like we mentioned last week? Or is he doing something else? I want to propose that Joseph is doing two different things at once. Last week, we saw that Joseph has all the power. Last week, we, saw that our, that we, last week we said that our model is to use our power for the sake of others. And I would argue that Joseph is doing that here. He's using his power to both test his brothers, to see if they're the same people who sold him into slavery, and he's using his power to protect Benjamin. How do we get there? Well, we spent a lot of time recapping the story of Joseph. Uh, when, we were, when we were reading through the story today, what did you notice about Benjamin? 
What we saw was that the ten brothers were sent to get food, but Benjamin stayed home. Where have we seen that before? Early on in the story of Joseph, we saw the ten brothers sent out and Joseph and Benjamin both staying home. Hmm. Clearly, Jacob is treating Benjamin like he treated Joseph. Joseph, while not the oldest, had been his father's favorite and therefore been placed in the position of receiving the double inheritance. He was the Bechor. Could it be that now Benjamin is the Bechor? Based on what we know about Joseph, it's very likely. That's how he did things. He's treating Benjamin the same way he treated Joseph. So Joseph is wondering, what will, my brother, will my brothers do the same thing to Benjamin they did to me? Joseph knows that his father is alive, but he also knows he's old. There are ten brothers, so are the ten brothers waiting for Jacob to die, and then they'll just off Benjamin like they did to Joseph. From Joseph's perspective, that doesn't seem so unreasonable, does it? As a person who is sold into slavery by, the, these, by these same brothers, who seems, to, who seems to see that Benjamin is treated with a favoritism that they are not, and the only interactions he's had with them are them being hateful enough to sell him into slavery. So he tests them. At the meal, he gives Benjamin five times the portions, right? Again, they're all hungry. They're all coming from a place of famine, which they've now run out of grain. They all are served food, which is great, and Benjamin gets way more, five times more. Where have we seen that before? Benjamin gets special treatment. Joseph got special treatment. Whether it's feasts or robes, we're in the same ballpark, aren't we? Special treatment, unfair distribution, meal portions, coats, you see where we're going here. How are the brothers going to respond to that? You know Joseph's watching their reactions carefully as Ben keeps getting more and more food. And then the final part of the test. Benjamin's found to have the cup. They're brought back before Joseph. And Joseph has them in a situation in which he gets to have a clear look at their character. Benjamin stands before him, a thief caught red-handed, as far as they know, right? <clears throat> and this is a brilliant test. Judah then declares all the brothers will be his slaves. But Joseph responds by saying, no, just the person who had the cup, just Ben, the rest of you can go. Why is that the brilliant part of the test? Because now the brothers have an out. The brothers can leave if they want to. All they have to do is leave Benjamin in Egypt. They're free, no repercussions. All they have to do is sell their brother into slavery. Hmm, where have we seen that before? What are they going to do? Are these the same people that sold Jacob, or sorry, Joseph into slavery? Are they going to respond the same way? Are they going to walk away? Or are they going to sell their brother into slavery? Or walk away and sell their brother into slavery? Or are they going to do something different? Joseph feels like he's protecting Benjamin. He's testing his brothers. Are you the same people who sold me into slavery? And if you are, I'll keep Benjamin here for his own protection. 
Let's see how the story ends. Then Judah went to him and said, Pardon your servant, my lord. Let me speak a word to my lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. Jumping to verse 33. Now then, please let your servant remain here as, this is Judah. Now let your servant remain here as my lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Judah gets the win, right? Next week, we're actually going to focus on this interaction more closely. But for now, Joseph is saying that he was, he's going to keep Ben as the slave. His brothers could leave, but instead, Judah steps up. Now, he's taking a monster risk here as well, and Joseph knows that. Don't miss that. He realizes, Judah realizes he's taking a, master, a monster step. Him and his brothers have just been granted mercy by the second most powerful person in Egypt. The second most powerful person in Egypt has made a decree. I'm keeping Ben, you may go. They've been given mercy. In that time and space, you don't then come back and question that decision. That's taking your own life at the line. You, he may still keep Benjamin and then kill you for questioning his decision, right? It's how things work there. You don't, you don't like my mercy? Fine, don't have it. You're dead. And yet he's willing to take the risk anyway. And he offers his life in place of Benjamin's. Last week we talked about power. We talked about how we use our power matters. We showed again that Christ's model, Christ model of power in Philippians 2, that equality with God wasn't something he needed to use to his advantage, but instead used it to empower other people. This week, we see that that kind of power used, that we see that kind of power, the Jesus model of power used, um, uh, used in a practical way, on display in a practical way, both in Joseph in his attempt to protect Benjamin, and in Judah, also in his attempt to protect Benjamin. In both cases, those men could use their power, in both those cases, those men used their power to protect what they perceived to be weak or hurting or in danger. Like we mentioned at the beginning of the message, our world views power or influence or control they're all intertwined. It's something that, that needs to be maintained or persevered or protected at all costs. We often use our power to pr protect our power. We often feel like we need to use our power to keep others down so we won't lose the power that we've had. But that's not how Jesus uses his power. We've already said that. If we use our power, if we use, we don't use our power to, he doesn't use his power to keep others down, but he uses his power to raise the bottom we actually see it in Philippians, but we see it throughout his life as well. I think one of the most beautiful places in which that's on display is in Matthew 4, which says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering, severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, which is north, the Decapolis, which is the ten cities, also north, Jerusalem, which is in the south, and Judea, which is in the south as well, and the region across the Jordan. So that entire region came to him and followed him. 
What you've got is this large group of hurting and struggling people, and those are the people that Jesus spends his time seeking out. The sick, the poor, the hurting. He says, I need to be with you, and I need to help heal you. Matthew 4 is the, this part that we just read is this, uh, kind of like the prologue to what we call the, the Sermon on the Mount. The very next verse after this is the beginning of what we call the Beatitudes, which is the list of blessed are those. The first half of those, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, those, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, are all declarations of God's for, God being for the hurting and the oppressed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What that means is people who just want to have an interaction with the divine and can't find it. Jesus' declaration is, I'm here for you. Blessed are those who are mourning, those whose hearts are breaking. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount says, I'm here for you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They see the world is busted and not the way it should be. The declaration is, I'm here for you. Blessed are the meek, those who feel powerless. Declaration of the beginning of the Beatitudes is, I'm here for you. What we see throughout Jesus' life is that he chases down those who perceive to be marginalized or hurting or sick or, or powerless, giving them a special emphasis inside of his main, inside of his whole mission. He heals the sick. He heals those in pain. He's constantly looking to protect the Benjamins. In your relationships, Paul says, have the same attitude of mind that Christ Jesus had. Last week we said how we use our power matters. We said we use it to empower those around us. This week, we see that we need to have a special focus on those who are weaker. It's all about the Benjamins. Sorry, some of you got that. In seriousness, no. I... Even throughout Jesus' parables, he'll say, I love all of you. And yet those who are hurting, I'm going to look for in a special way. It's the parable of the 99 and the one. I have 99 sheep who are safe here and I will keep them safe. And if one of you is out there and hurting and missing, I'm going to come find you. In Philippians, it says, have the same attitude of mind that Christ Jesus has. Our mission as a church, as a body of believers, is to pay attention to what power we have and use it well in all aspects of things. And two, put a special emphasis on those who are hurting or broken or marginalized or feel powerless or feel uh, less than in those ways. Because that's what Jesus does. Over and over and over again, he says, I love everybody and if you are hurting, I'm gonna use my power to help lift you up a little bit. If you are sick, I'll heal you. I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you dignity and I'll give you value and I'll proclaim that you are loved and cared for. So our charge this week is going to be twofold. Not one isn't a charge, but an encouragement. If you're in this space this morning and you feel like a Benjamin, feel like you are marginalized, feel like you don't have value, feel like you don't have worth, feel like you, you don't have any uh, uh, identity or, or, or significance in this world, See that in Joseph's life, which is, which, in which he is living the discipleship journey the best way he can, he, he's showing that God's heart beats for people in your space. 
not just in Joseph's life, but in Jesus's as well. If you're here this morning and you feel like you're in a space where you have no value, the Bible, the good news of the gospel is over and over and over again, you do. You are seen, you are loved, you are cared for, you are significant in this world. The second part is that as God's body of Christ, seeking to to live more like Jesus did, seeking to be deeper and better disciples of our faith, we're charged to use our power well, and we have to have a special focus on those around us who are hurting. And so in your life, last week we asked, where is your power and how are you going to use it? This week I want to ask, who's your Benjamin? Who's the person in your life who needs you to use your power to advocate for them, to see them. Maybe it's not advocate, maybe it's just seeing them and declare life in their lives again. Maybe it's, maybe it's offering a practical hand in some certain way. Hey, I know you can't do this, I wanna help you with that. Maybe it's offering a word of affirmation of value. Maybe it's sitting with them as they mourn, whatever it might be. Maybe it's helping them heal from physical or emotional wounds. As the body of Christ, if we're going to live lives of next steps towards discipleship, like we saw in Joseph's story, like we see in Jesus' life as well, we need to use our power for the sake of those who are powerless. I love that this week is communion because it meets us in that space. In the book of Romans, it says, while we were still powerless, while we were still sinners, at just the right time, Christ died for us. The literal culmination of Jesus' work here on earth is saying that all of you that were powerless, I'm coming for you. And we celebrate that at the table. It's the space in which we remember that, that we are loved, that while we were powerless, Christ came for us that he gave us a new way and a new charge to do the same for others, that in our, our hearts are in, in, our, in our attitudes and minds to be like Christ Jesus and model him in that way. And so in just a few minutes, we're going to invite you to come to the table. I want you today, as you come to the table first, to recognize that at one point in time, we were all Benjamins, powerless, needing protection. And that the table is the declaration that that there's someone for you. But then two, realize that at the table, we remember that Christ has passed that charge to us. See, communion is the practice of admitting to ourselves that we all have brokenness in our lives. The declaration that we need Christ. And it's also the declaration that we need each other. Each of us has fallen short. Each of us have failed in one way or another. And communion is a reminder that failure is not what defines us in Christ. Communion is a reminder that Christ has defeated death and because of that, sin is no longer our master. So today, communion is an invitation to anybody who's given their life to Jesus or would like to uh, now to accept those promises for themselves. You're welcome to come join us at the table. At the table, There is no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and he's in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, hold on to that peace. Clothe yourself with compassion and kindness, with humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, 
put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Now hear these words from Luke twenty-two fourteen. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he, came, then he took, a cup, uh, took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He then took bread and he broke it. And he said this, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, remember me. Likewise, he took the cup and he said, this is the sign of the new covenant. My blood shed for you. When you drink it, remember me. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today realizing the deep love you have for each and every one of us. That your heart breaks for the hurting, for the marginalized, for the powerless. Your heart breaks for each of us. Lord, this morning, can, may we live into the assurance that every person here is, was a Benjamin and is beloved by you. That, you. that you view us all through the eyes of meaning and significance. That you love each and every one of us. God, we pray as well that you give us your eyes to see the people around us. We know in that space that your eyes, your heart beats a, a little faster for those who are hurting and may we be able to see that as well. With whatever power you've given us, may we use it to empower the powerless. May we have the same attitude in mind that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or maintained or to be used to his own advantage, but instead made himself nothing. Amen.